infertility challenges every story you've ever been told. You grew up and you thought, I'm going to meet somebody and fall in love and we're going to have a baby and it's all going to be easy. And then you realize something isn't working and everything just went out the window. It's terribly confusing. And then you say, well, we're at the fertility clinic and somebody says, oh, good. Well, then I know everything's going to work out just fine, but we don't know anything. We don't know anything about our lives anymore. Everything changed. Been There, Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Welcome to this episode of Been There, Injected That. I'm your host, Elise Ash. Today on the podcast, we have two special guests who know so much about the emotional trauma that is infertility and work with patients like you and me all the time. Today we have Dr. Deborah Simmons, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing for more than 20 years in infertility and child loss. We also have Debbie Fisher, who's also a marriage and family therapist, and she specializes as well in all things reproductive medicine and loss. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's such a delight to see you both here. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience in this field and kind of what brought you to it originally. So uh, Dr. Deborah Simmons, I'm going to refer to you as Deborah throughout this. And then Debbie Fisher will say Debbie. Got two Debs. <laughs> so we'll have to make sure it's clear who's speaking. But um, Dr. Deborah Simmons, why don't you share a little bit first? Well, thanks for having us. Uh, I used to be in policy and politics. And I had a baby very early after being shocked that I could get pregnant at all and thought, well, okay, that career's over. So now I need to do something else. And there was a day when my, my child was in the NICU, and I thought, is this child going to live or not? And I was marched across the street to a psychiatrist, and I thought, okay, there's the path that somebody can help me. You know, somebody helped me, and I can now help somebody else. So moved out to Minnesota and got a doctorate in uh, family therapy and decided to specialize in exactly what we're doing right now. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Debbie, maybe you can share a little bit, too, about your pathway to this profession and, you know, why is it that you choose to help this particular population of people? So like Deborah, I also came to this from uh, personal history. So I have a 20-year career in human resources, but along the way, as we embarked upon our journey for family planning, um, we had a lot of trauma. And so um, different story from Dr. Simmons, but my, I conceived, no problem, and uh, went full term to, to 40 weeks with our first child, and he was stillborn on his due date. Um, likely due to uh, reasons with the umbilical cord, though we're not certain. And then I struggled with secondary infertility. So to add insult to injury, we could not get pregnant again. And so we went through many, many rounds of IUIs, uh, failed IUIs and IVF. Um, we did conceive a son through fertility treatment um, and then managed to conceive again on my own. Big surprise. And that son was also stillborn. And then I conceived again on my own and had a miscarriage. And we thought, this is it. We're done. Um, but we decided to give it one more go when our insurance changed and uh, ended up with one more IVF opportunity and conceived uh, twins as a result. So after 
nearly a decade of either trying to get pregnant or suffering through child loss, we thought, I, I thought, you know, I've somehow, I've survived this and my marriage is still intact remarkably. And now what do I do with all of it? And so I chose to go back to school to change careers and focus on this as a way to hopefully help others who are also uh, finding themselves in the same situation. Wow. So coming from a deeply personal experience and desire to help other people the way that you had probably needed help during that time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Deborah and Debbie, both of you have your own practice here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Could you speak a little bit about your practice? Partners in Fertility has been around for a year, but we've been doing this work for a long time, and we work with uh, people with infertility, pregnancy loss, and assisted reproduction. So we're doing a lot of surrogacy. We help people try and figure out what to do, decision-making, and then also the trauma that goes with all of these reproductive issues. Can you speak a little bit more specifically to what trauma means when you're saying the word trauma to some people who might not be as familiar with mental health? Trauma comes as a shock to our minds and bodies. There are things that we never expected that would happen. There are things we can't get out of our minds. There are things that our bodies react to. And there are things that are just a terrible blow to the psyche and to the body. So there's a lot of different ways that that happens. Um, Seeing uh, an ultrasound that doesn't have a baby on it at, at seven, eight weeks is a trauma, for example. There's a lot of different kinds of trauma. And it used to be we'd talk about a little T trauma and a large T trauma, but now it's just trauma. As it pertains to infertility, you know, that there's loss that goes with that. Our, our bodies are not doing what we expect them to do. And so there's a loss that goes with that. And also there's something called disenfranchised grief. And so that pertains to um, others not recognizing our grief. And so there's trauma that goes with that, right? Others who can't understand why infertility is uh, such a, a tremendous burden for us and such a loss and not fully grasping that. And so sort of brushing it off and, you know, just just relax, it'll happen, or why is this a big deal? Folks can't seem to fully grasp that, and so they disenfranchise our grief. There's a lot of vulnerability and exposure that comes with what Debbie was just talking about, that people just don't understand how raw all of this is, and they look right past it because, as Debbie said, you can just move on. There's no just in this. There's no justice in this just. Why is it so hard for people who haven't gone through infertility to see that pain and that grief, what makes it so challenging for other people to see that? One thing to consider is that people may not recognize that it's a disease, right? It's And so when somebody has cancer or something that they have more experience with and understanding of, that they, they can understand, they can empathize with. But for infertility... It doesn't make sense to folks. They're not. They don't understand that 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 um, our bodies are not working in the way that they're supposed to, and that that is a medical problem. So there's been a couple studies that have shown that the stress of going through infertility treatments can be similar to the levels of stress by of cancer patients going through treatment. Can you speak a little bit about why that is? Cancer is a shock because you think you might die. You might suffer and die. Infertility challenges every story you've ever been told. 
you grew up and you thought, I'm going to meet somebody and fall in love and we're going to have a baby and it's all going to be easy. And then you realize something isn't working and it's really confusing. And then a doctor tells you maybe that you have a diagnosis of some sort because it is a medical problem. And everything just went out the window. It's terribly confusing. And then you say, well, we're at the fertility clinic. And somebody says, oh, good. Well, then I know everything's going to work out just fine. But we don't know anything. We don't know anything about our lives anymore. Everything changed. And that's why. What are some of the most common challenges you hear from couples who are going through infertility? What are some of those big themes that you probably hear again and again? I'm sure every story is different. Every couple has a different history and relationship and different nuances to their story. But what is it? What are those big, big themes that you keep hearing? There are seven or eight things that couples go through. Financial problems, sex. These are the things that show up in a couple therapy sessions. Uh, Sex, money, power and control, uh, children. How are we going to live with leisure? You know, what are we going to do in our lives? And if you do that as an overlay now on having a child, all of it comes into play. Are we going to pay money to go to a clinic? Do we have money to go to a clinic? Sex doesn't mean anything anymore because we're not getting pregnant or staying pregnant. You can see how couples begin to really fuss about things. And um, there's also the optimism-pessimism thing that's in most couples. You know, we're going to do just fine, and the other one is falling apart because they say we're in trouble right now. Is that, is that the usual dynamic you see where maybe one couple is more hopeful and the other couple is more – or the other member of the couple is more pessimistic? Absolutely. Optimism bordering on denial. Okay. Yes. It depends on where they are in their journey, though, as well, right? And so a lot of times we might not see somebody because initially folks don't tend to come in for, for therapy or for counseling, right? Because they, they have that optimism to start, perhaps. And so a lot of times when when they're coming in, they're both deflated and defeated. So it depends on, on the couples. Sometimes they're exactly as Deborah described, and sometimes they're both really deep down in that hole. How does somebody know that now might be the time for them to benefit from therapy? Are there some flags that you should be looking at, um, some ways that you're thinking or patterns in your uh, behavior that might signify, okay, it's time to talk to somebody professionally? If you're so anxious or depressed that you can't get out of bed, it's gone on way too long, that would be a good time to start. Uh, If you normally see your world as an optimistic, happy place and you can't find any joy in it at all, or you're so anxious you can't think, or you are angry all the time, or you're isolating from people, those are all signals. And if there's starting to be fights within a couple, uh, that that also, don't wait. You know, if, if the ship is already sinking, it's a lot harder to get the water bailed out. So get it before the ship sinks. What are some of the most common fights or stressors within these relationship dynamics that you see? We talked a little bit about this optimism, pessimism, push and pull. Are there any other high-level themes that you see most frequently with couples? So decision-making can be a big piece. One, when they're in different pages where one wants to maybe continue and do all the things and the other one is saying, hey, wait a minute, I, I thought that the, you know we were going to stop here or... 
that's gone too far. And so finances can play a part in that as well as just for, for some it's philosophical. And so um, there's many reasons why that could be a piece of it. But um, that would be one. Sex, as, as uh, Deborah said, you know, it's just it's no fun any longer. <laughs> um, and so that you know, the a lot of the intimacy can maybe go away if you don't focus on that because you're 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 just doing it to get pregnant, or somebody else is getting you pregnant, and so just stop. Like if you're at the fertility, tr- I'll give you a personal example. But by the time we got to to the fertility clinic, I said, "Fine, it's on you. You're, it's up to you to get me pregnant. I, I'm I'm done with the responsibility of it." But let me tell you that I I had no desire to do anything else in the bedroom. Yeah, you know, it was just. Done. No, and it's weird because I feel like a misconception with, oh, you're trying is, oh, wow, you're having a lot of sex and it's probably really hot. You're like, no, I'm crying all the time. And I feel like even after you go through your infertility journey, it can take a little while to recalibrate and remember, oh, yeah, I feel connected to my partner. This actually feels good. Uh, it can take a little while to forget some of those moments and some of that stress and anxiety that came with the sex of trying to conceive versus sex for connection and fun. Right. And and how about the fact that everything is now managed by that clock, right? The two-week wait and when you're ovulating and when and the shots. And so how having any downtime, any time for fun or um, travel, can you imagine? How are you going to travel? Well, I've got a, a retrieval. I You know, it's so... You need time for yourselves as well, but you're all consumed by that. I think that was something that was missing a lot for us was that concept of being playful and having joy in anything. It just, everything felt really heavy and there was no sense of levity. And I struggled to compartmentalize and I really couldn't get to a place where I was fun. I just was pretty mechanical and structured and here's the calendar, here's where when we're having sex in it. There's no room or space for anything else. It's just frivolity. Exactly. And how about, um, I don't know if, if you uh, had any of this as well, but if depending on whether family members know, they might have a lot to say about it. And maybe, oh, right? yes, of course. <laughs> Everyone has a lot to say about it. <laughs> right. And so that, that can be a problem in, in your relationship too, right? Like I just need your mother to lay <laughs> off of me for five minutes. I'll let her know when I'm ready to let her know something. Do you have a best practice around either encouraging your patients to share their story with you know trusted members of their family or friends? Um, or does that seem to be something that triggers anxiety for people where they don't want people to know? There's a lot of different things in that question, but mostly I would put it in the privacy versus shame conversation. So privacy, everybody doesn't deserve to know your business. We don't ask the neighbor what kind of position they use to get pregnant. You know, we don't always have to describe the entire process. That's really nobody's business. And private would say um, you don't want a lot of questions from other people because you're trying to manage your own anxiety. Shame would be I don't want anybody to know because I can't believe I'm here and it's too vulnerable. And that, that I think, is not very helpful. So for people to tell their story, everybody's going to know the story, and everybody's going to have questions. And then how do you manage the information gate about that? Yeah, I think sometimes we forget in this age of social media and oversharing that we really are in control of our stories, and we decide who gets to hear what, who has earned the privilege of hearing our stories and whose opinions do we want to hear and who do we really not want to hear from. And I think too often we mix it all up with, oh, I either have to like be public about this on Facebook or 
I have to be totally private. And in reality, there's so much gray area where you can control the narrative and you can control who's hearing what. You're not obligated to tell anybody anything. The, the place that's most important is that two partners agree on what is the amount of things we will share and when. And it is important that you have somebody that you can offload on outside of your relationship. If the two people who are in the experience are just too bound up in it, it's helpful to tell one person. But then you're depending on that person not to tell everybody. Yeah, that's a good point as well. When you do start letting other people in, you should be careful. You can't unsay something. Mm -hmm. So just being really strategic and purposeful around who you're telling and what you're telling them. Mm -hmm. If you decide to tell everybody, you're also going to invite all of the just relaxes and you shoulds. And that's why it, it, there's pros and cons to tell. Totally. And the stories of, well, my friend, she'd tried for three years. And then all of a sudden, when she stopped trying and she went to Mexico with her husband, this magical thing happened, mm-hmm. which I did not want to hear any more of those stories. And you can always just adopt. And I know how many people that as soon as they decided to adopt, oh, they got pregnant immediately. Oh, my gosh. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. So I've spent a lot of time this past year developing awesome relationships with a bunch of different companies who serve TTC warriors. And many of them make products like supplements or pregnancy tests, or they sell services as well. And they're really trying to help people grow their families. A lot of these companies are being very generous and offering some incredible discounts to fruitful members and also listeners of Been There Injected That. So if you want to get in on this action, you should visit fruitfulfertility.org deals. There's some really awesome discounts on a bunch of brands you've probably heard of, some really trusted content and stuff, everything from helping with nutrition and fitness to helping track your sperm at home. There is a ton of great stuff on there. So before you buy anything else to try to get pregnant, I highly recommend you visit fruitfulfertility.org deals. And now back to the show. So what are some of the emotional challenges that single parents who are pursuing parenthood solo might be experiencing as well? The women that we see who are single are already experiencing a lot of loss. They haven't found a partner. They would like the entire package of both a partner and a child. And so now they have to think about what does life look like? It's very different than what they imagined. How do they prove that they have a fertility problem? Well, there are some blood tests and such. But like our our, uh, gay and lesbian clients, they still need help. They need to do something else in addition And they can feel punished because everything else has punished them. Why wouldn't this? Well, and I can imagine having some additional social pressure from family, friends, some judgment. Can she do this? Can he do this if you need a gestational carrier? I mean, there's so many steps. How do you select a sperm donor, egg donor? How do you select someone who's going to help collaborate with you through this process in this really important way? And a lot of times uh, if their family members – might not understand why they are going through su- to such lengths. And by that, I mean, why, why are they going to the fertility clinic? Why can't they just get some sperm, for example, for our single moms and get themselves pregnant? I've had m- multiple single women whose parents told them, just go have a one-night stand. Just go hook up with somebody. I can't imagine. Right? <laughs> do, like, that is so funny, thinking about it from an infertility 
standpoint where you think, okay, if you only have a 20 to 30% chance of conceiving any cycle, even when you're 100% healthy, mm-hmm. and it's timed exactly so, what, you want me to sleep with like a random person at a bar every couple days for like Lord knows how many months and fingers crossed? And that just shows how little understanding there is, right? I mean, the implications of doing that are huge. The point of that is that there's a there's a lack of understanding and perhaps a lack of support then that goes with it when they're when they're not being able to be fully supportive of why they're going to the lengths of following proper channels and going to see a, a reproductive endocrinologist and right. Is there a best practice for parents who have used a sperm donor or egg donor to tell their children about where they come from to disclose that information? Are there best practices around? When's the right age? How do you tell them? Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So what we share with our clients is that, you know, first of all, it's their choice. They're they're the parents. We're not there to tell them how to parent their child. They get to make those decisions. The only thing that we can share is um, what the research shows and provide, provide resources. And so what you'll find is that the research shows that um, it's best to disclose when the child is quite young. So before the child has formed an identity would be the best time to start sharing, that they should never have the, um, that they, they should never be able to remember that sit-down moment, that bombshell moment. It's just always woven into their narrative. They've always known this. So at a very early age, like preschool, for yeah, example. Yeah, that's helpful to hear because I think a lot of parents might think, my kid is too young to even understand how babies are made normally, quote unquote, how am I supposed to explain a sperm donor? And I don't want my kid to know about Petri dishes or I don't, I want to preserve the sense of innocence. They don't understand these things that parents tell themselves. And we don't need to tell them all of that right out the gate, right? And there are plenty of children's books. There's some wonderful children's books that will help to to share the story in language that children can understand. And as they get older, then they'll continue to have more questions the more that they understand, and we can fill in those blanks for them. So, for example, I have a book that I absolutely love in it, and it talks in terms of puzzle pieces. And so the it, you can show the your child that you needed you were missing a puzzle piece, and you needed a puzzle piece to to finish, you know, and, and it's in the shape of a heart. It's the cutest book, but anyway, that that you just need that they need a puzzle piece, and so a nice person donated one of their puzzle pieces, and that's how they got to be who they are. So it's a very simple story. It can be told in lots of different ways, and the, and the resources are readily available. We know that children do best in, in an atmosphere of transparency. So if you start with a story of vague truth, we needed to talk with a doctor, and the doctor helped us so that you could come into the world. That's an appropriate story for a three- or four-year-old. And then the puzzle pieces, and there are different kinds of seeds. There's a woman kind of seeds, and there's a man kind of seeds, and we needed this or that kind. And then we fit it to the story. Either uh, this woman carried a baby or that woman carried a baby, depending on what, you know, what the story is. And children get it, and they will come back and ask questions, and you answer those questions as best as you can. And if you don't know the answer, like, well, who is the donor? And what does that donor look like? And who do I look like? Do I look like the donor? We have to be honest and say, well, we don't know that, but we do know this. And we just keep offering as the child grows, and then the child asks questions as they grow and have a different understanding of it. What are some questions that couples should ask themselves before considering Egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation. 
one question is how are they dealing with the loss of their own genetics? And that never really is done. But if we can look at these other issues of donor conception as an opportunity and deal with the loss, now we have a conversation where people can grow to have a family. The other sticky point for so many couples is the peace on disclosure. And I think that it's uh, very important that couples have that conversation and have an agreement on what that might look like. And if they still are having difficulty processing that, that's something we can work through in therapy. But that, that a lot of times is a sticky point for folks is, is that piece of what does this mean for my child? What do I share? When do I share it? Do I, I want to? I could imagine also having some feelings kick up some shame feelings around, I'm really heartbroken about this loss, but I wish I wasn't, or I didn't think I would have an issue with this. We've always talked about adoption. We've always talked about this. But now that I'm faced with this decision, I feel differently. Mm-hmm. I think that the the finish line keeps moving. So we're going to have sex in the bed, and we're going to have a baby. Okay, that's not working. We're going to go to the clinic, and we're going to have a baby, and that isn't working. We're going to look at donor conception, Maybe. We're going to look at adoption, maybe. All the way along, the mindset changes to this is my kid to I want to be a parent. And if people can make that turn in their minds, they can keep going and come home happy. There, there will always be grief about this. And they, there can be joy, too. So how do you think social media and the Internet and a lot of these Facebook groups and private Instagram accounts have been changing the way people connect about infertility? Is it a good thing that there's more access to these communities and there's less shame? Is it more problematic because more people are saying louder things that might not be correct? Both? In my opinion, it's both, um, but better good than bad. You know, in the past, it's really hard for this topic to come up. It's a lot easier when you're behind your computer screen and you, and you can talk anonymously to somebody or post something on a, on a special, you know, in a group that, that's, spe- that's just for this. Uh, in the past, we kind of hid in shame, shameful that, are, that we're unable to conceive and then who do we talk to and how do we bring that up. Now there's more accessibility. There's places to go to. There's fruitful fertility. <laughs> um, so to that end... It can be very beneficial when you can find your people, when you can find your village, your community, and have a space to talk about all the things that that you're working through. The downside, though, sometimes is you can end up in a rabbit hole. Um, So depending on where you end up, you can end up, you know, going further and further and deeper and deeper into a place that maybe you didn't want to. Maybe it starts to add anxiety of all the things that you didn't know. And then separate to that is, um, to your point, the unwanted responses if you're posting things or if you're on social media and you're continuing to see everyone else conceive, you know, you might want to make some changes to how you're seeing, how you're filtering that. I think you just have to be really self-aware and know what's helping you and when to stop and how a lot of these Social media platforms have built in some cool features where you can mute people and not unfollow them. That's been like my number one favorite feature because I didn't want to see your growing bump. I didn't want to see your weekly update every week, your beta results, your ultrasound pictures. Like that was very triggering for me. So I had to know, okay, it's time to put the the phone away. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I think sometimes in this community, there can be a little bit of a grief competition. (laughs) Who has struggled the longest? How many IVF rounds did you do? Uh, How many miscarriages have you had? What week was your miscarriage at? Um, There seems to be sometimes this level of, I don't feel like I can fully mourn because my miscarriage happened at five weeks. It could have been worse. Why is that? Why do we compare our grief to other people? And what would you say to someone who's struggling with that? It's one of the ways that women compete. It's unfair. It doesn't make any sense, but it exists. If you are devastated with a five-week miscarriage, then you're devastated. Now, is that the same of the devastation of somebody who has a 40-week stillbirth on their due date? I don't think so. I think they're different. Yeah, and just to add to that, and and still, when you have an early loss or whenever the loss is, I mean, it's, it's still the loss of a dream. So the minute that you get that positive pregnancy test, you, you've got everything. You, you know the estimated due date. Oh, you know when they're going to go to kindergarten. You know when they're going to graduate. You can imagine it all. And you have all those dates in your mind as well. And so when you have a loss, until the due date and beyond, you, your mind, your, your body, everything is still remembering, oh, this week I should be this many and this, right? And so there's so much. It it lingers. It continues. It's not just done. It it continues. What are some ways that couples can honor the loss of a child? What are some ways that can remember? Is there anything that can make it feel better besides processing their own trauma, doing the work, finding their community? Is there anything else they can do? Sure, there's lots of things that they can do. Um, And I would encourage folks to, if they so desire, to continue to have that bond with their baby in whatever way is meaningful to them. And so for some, they want to have uh, memorialized in in some ways. So, for example, uh, my husband gifted us, uh, gifted me a star that he named after our our son who was who was stillborn after our first loss. seeing their name in print was just very beneficial to me. It gave them some permanence. I was like, see, see, they matter. They existed. They, they, they were here. Um, others might, you know, you can write a letter, you can plant a tree, you can, you can purchase a bench at the state fair within, in their memory, right? I mean, there's so many things that we can do to allow us to be able to continue that relationship, to be able to parent them just because they're not here with us physically, we, doesn't mean that we stop being their parent. We will always be their parent. And it's important that we allow ourselves to continue to parent them in whatever way is meaningful to us. What are some of the unique emotional challenges that somebody struggling with secondary infertility might go through? And can you explain a little bit about how that's unique? People who have had a child get no love at all from other people when they are now experiencing secondary infertility. You get a lot of, well, you have a child. What's your problem? Why can't you just be happy with what you have? And Ali Domar, who's a psychologist in Boston, has said it's not the number of children that you have. It's the number of children that you want. That's why people don't get any love at all, because they still dream of somebody. They still want four people around the table, not two. I can imagine also feeling not necessarily welcomed in a lot of the more traditional infertility communities where you have people spending so much money doing so much work to just become a parent and to potentially feel judged by people. Well, you already have the one thing that I want and you're ungrateful. I can imagine that would feel very (laughs) unwelcoming. People are plenty grateful. 
they're they're intensely grateful. It's just that they don't have what they want. And it's a different conversation. Again, we're at a competition that one woman has something that you want, but this woman also wants more. Everybody wants what they want. It doesn't matter. You're also sometimes looking at your friends who might have kids the same age as your kid. They're maybe getting pregnant again easily. You're getting questions around, when are you having another? There are a lot of judgments and stereotypes around only children and a lot of this just one. There's a lot of pain about seeing your friends go on to have their second and third child when you either haven't had your first or you're having a heck of a time having a second. I remember the pregnancy announcements that always personally hurt the most were people who had gotten married and then got pregnant immediately. And I was like, we've already been, we've been trying longer than they've been married. How is this fair? And the reality is none of it's fair. And I think that's a huge learning for a lot of people too. Some people who have to deal with infertility who maybe haven't had a lot of grief or loss or things go sideways, they've had a pretty easy road comparatively. And now they look at, oh my gosh, I actually have no control over my life. Control is a fallacy. None of us have control over much of anything. And that's part of what this experience has taught all of us, I think, that we thought we had control over our lives. We thought that we're going to get pregnant in May and we're going to have a baby in whatever month because we thought that would be a neat month to have it. Yeah, or, oh, that's the month that I get off work, or, oh, I want my kid to be a Pisces, or whatever weird thing we right. make up. Right, and, and what life is, is luck and effort and uh, gratitude and a whole lot of persistence for a lot of us. Are there any coping techniques or tips that listeners can implement to make going through infertility a little bit easier? People who are anxious... People will often say, well, just take a deep breath. But an anxious person, for whatever reason, can't take a deep breath. They're already breathing very shallowly. So we'll talk to people about exhaling first, very slowly, very intentionally, because it'll make more room. And when you do that, your brain tends to open up. So that one's free. You don't even <laughs> need to go to a clinic for that. Just breathe. And to piggyback on control, another aspect would be to consider where you can let go of some control and what can you control and becoming more aware of that, right? And recognizing that we can't control everything. So we can take some control back by recognizing that and being okay with letting go of some of it. Find your people, find, find support. So, uh, you know, Fruitful is a resource that we recommend to so many people to, to, to find their person. Um, so support groups, one-on-one, -on -one, those who are already in your, in your life who you find um, are very supportive, fantastic. They're wonderful books. Therapy, obviously. Maybe I should have started with therapy. Therapy. <laughs> I feel like that's implied. Um, <laughs> Don't get sucked down the rabbit hole of social media. If it's not benefiting you, get off of it. There are some really cool features around that you can set your t a time limit on Instagram or Facebook, and it will kick you off the app once your time is up for the day. So you can set a time limit. Like, I only want to be on Instagram 10 minutes. Yeah, That's really important. There have been some studies about the longer time women spend on social media, the more depressed they are. And it makes sense. The longer you're captivated in that community, the more rabbit holes there are, the more you could easily spin out. There's also this, this thing that happens in any group 
where sometimes there's one person who's sucking all the energy out. And so you have to be careful about that, too. Oh, I totally understand that. I feel like in general and in a lot of Facebook groups and Instagram communities, there are two or three people who really monopolize and who have their own very strong opinions that can drown out a lot of the others. And just to be aware and to be able to say to yourself, is this helpful to me or not? And if it's not, be able to walk away. You don't feel like you're going to hurt someone's feelings. You need to do what's right for you. And the last thing that I would add, and we could all benefit, and I think that uh, I, I, for one, could do a much better job of this, is prioritizing self-care. And that, that so easily goes by the wayside. But finding time for yourself to do things that you enjoy, massage, you know, pedicures, um, acupuncture can be so beneficial, especially with anxiety, right? That I know that that was super helpful for me and it brought my anxiety way down. Um, so, you know, self-care, I think, would be another thing that we can add to the top of the list. Moving around, taking a walk. I'm not talking about exercise and all. A lot of people will exercise really hard to deal with anxiety, but just moving generally, you know, dancing in your house in your underpants, it, it, it all makes a difference. Sorry, I just had a visual of Deborah dancing by herself in her underpants. <laughs> a little Some of risky business. A risky business moment. <laughs> I like to do it to Taylor Swift. I draw the line of her doing it at the practice. Yeah. Oh my gosh, dance therapy. Underpants are on at our practice. (laughs) There should be dance therapy. We we do dance it out sometimes. You need to. I feel like there are a lot of videos that have gone viral of like women before a mastectomy who are like, I just need to dance to Beyonce. Like, yes. Can that be implemented into like more traditional medicine practices, please? One last question. I hear a lot from people who want to go to therapy, who see the value in it, who've had great therapy experiences in the past, who aren't sure how to find a therapist who's either covered by their insurance, lives near them, or specializes in what they're interested in. Can you kind of explain a good way to find a therapist who you connect with, who um, might specialize in something that you're concerned about? Where does somebody start? You can go to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine site, ASRM.org. You can find mental health professionals who specialize in things reproductive like we do. You can go to psychologytoday.com and put in the word infertility or pregnancy loss, and people will pop up. The, The problem with insurance is that, I guess here's how I think about it. You can use your insurance or you can get well. And... It is a problem to go in to talk about infertility or pregnancy loss with somebody who doesn't know anything because talking about how you were when you were three is irrelevant. This kind of work can be very brief. It's not about everything that ever happened. It's about what's happening right now. And so people don't have to think that this is a year-long process that they have to go through. could be one or two sessions. That could be very much exactly what they needed. Thank you so much, Debbie Fisher, Dr. Deborah Simmons, for coming in and speaking with us about mental health and infertility. You can learn more about their practice at partnersinfertility.net. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Twitter. Um, Both ladies are very active in the social media world, Facebook as well. Uh, I will link to the Partners in Fertility site and some of their social platforms in the show notes. So check that out. Thank you both so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. 
Thank you for having us, and thank you for being so marvelous at Fruitful Fertility. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. We're going to leave that one in for the very end so everyone can hear my wonderful compliment. Thank you guys so much, truly. That was Been There, Injected That. It is a new podcast produced by Fruitful Fertility, hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. Please rate us. Check out our website. Send us an email. Let us know what you're liking, what you're not liking, what you want more of, what you want less of. This is something new to us, and we are just excited to be helping spread the word. So thank you so much.